All right, take your Bibles and turn to 2 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 tonight. It's been a wonderful day. I think we were able to experience a, a taste of heaven today. Say, what are we going to do in heaven for all of eternity? Oh, I don't know exactly what we're going to do. I have a hunch of a few things we might be doing. Uh, one of those is probably sitting around and telling about how God worked in our lives and drew us to salvation. We heard a little bit of that tonight. Uh, one, of the, one of the other things that we'll be, we'll be doing is Book of Revelation talks about every tongue and tribe and nation and people coming before the throne of heaven and praising God and perhaps in their own unique way, in their own unique language, and uh, I had a blast today, this afternoon, at the Spanish service. I mean, I got one sentence from the message. I mean, one sentence, I understand. I understood every single word. I was, I was locked in. got one sentence. Oh, but what a joy it was to, to sing in, in Spanish and to hear God's name and God's words in another language. There's just nothing like it. And I wonder if that's what we're going to do in heaven. Sing and praise God and all different languages among all different people. What a view of heaven we have. And it has been a wonderful day. And then we contrast that with where we live on earth. And we see all the things that are going on even today in our world. The current events, what's happening today. I didn't have a chance to look into it while I was studying. My phone went off with a with a, uh, a news alert that described how a, a mob of people in, in Russia were storming an airport because they wanted to uh, threaten violence against the Jews on board the aircraft that had, had landed there. And we look at events like what's going on right now in our world and we can see the signs of the times. We can see nations... And the, the, uh, the alliances between nations forming to coincide exactly with what the Bible has to say. And one day there will be a battle that takes place between those, uh, those nations of the north allied with the, the kingdoms of, of Persia and the east and how they're going to uh, go after God's people. We know that that's going to happen during the time that's known as the tribulation. And now you see the alliances forming and strengthening exactly what God says was going to take place. The, the dark clouds of God's judgment are, we can see them on the horizon. Uh, we can see the, the, the nasty now and now of the, the day and age in which we live. It's not much different though than it was for these believers in Thessalonica. Because Paul in chapter 2 has just got done laying out what's going to happen in the future, and it wasn't a very pretty picture. We looked at it uh, just two weeks ago. He talks about the, the man of sin that is going to come. The man of sin, we, we know him as the Antichrist. And this Antichrist is going to appear on the scene with power and signs and lying wonders, and he will deceive the entire world. He will even deceive those who... Before were exposed to truth, they heard the Bible being preached, they heard about salvation, perhaps they even heard that one day these events uh, were going to take place. They heard those things, but they chose to reject those things, they chose to walk away from those things, and Paul reveals that God is going to send them strong delusions so that they would believe a lie. They'll go right along with it. And those who follow the Antichrist will be doomed to damnation. And that's pretty much how verse 10 through 12 ends. He talks about the deceivableness of unrighteousness and them that perish because they believe not the truth, that they might be saved. For this cause, God will send them strong delusion that they should believe a lie, that they all might be damned who believe not the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. A rather dark conclusion. That's the prospect of the future. Now, that's the future on this earth. We realize that 
there's another destination. We're going to talk about that uh, tonight for us as believers. But that is, that is the picture that Paul lays out. But you notice in verse 13, verse 13 begins with the word, but. There is a very clear contrast. I mean, this is like going, uh, uh, leaving a cold, dark, dank basement and coming out into the light. I mean, it's a contrast. This is, this is uh, being blinded and now all of a sudden being able to finally see light once again. The, the sea change in this verse with this one word is, is dramatic. It's huge. And so we continue reading a very different tenor than the verses prior to it. Look in verse 13. It says, But we, we are bound to give thanks Always to God for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord, because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth, whereunto he called you by our gospel to the obtaining of, of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which ye have been taught, whether by word or our epistle. Now our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God, even our Father, which hath loved us and hath given us everlasting consolation and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish you in every good word and work. Heavenly Father, would you help us tonight as we look into your word? Thank you for the encouragement that we find. And I pray that we would go from this place with a spring in our step, with a song in our heart, being encouraged by all that you have not only preserved here for us, but all that you've done for us as believers. Would you bless our time in your word? Would you guide and direct everything that's said? In Jesus' name we ask, amen. So here Paul sort of concludes the heart chapter of Second Thessalonians. So this chapter is really the reason why Paul wrote this letter. This is what was really on his heart. He, he begins chapter 2 talking about uh, the, the, the problems that he heard about, the fact that they were troubled and shaken in their mind and in their spirit because of, of what was going on there. They, they, they were wondering whether or not they had missed God's plan for them, whether or not God had forgotten about them and, and what was going on. And, and Paul's writing to reassure them. Paul's writing to remind them. He lays out once again, no, everything's fine. God will take care of you. You're not looking for that day of wrath. You're not looking for the tribulation. You're not looking for the end times per se. You're looking for the coming of Jesus in the clouds. He's coming and he's going to take believers away. He's going to catch us out of this world. We're not, we're, we're not appointed to wrath, but we are appointed to God's love as believers. And so he, he writes to them, uh, reassuring them, laying out, yes, here's what's going to happen. Here's how it's going to take, pla uh, take place so that they understood their role, their place in everything. And he, he, he deals with that topic of the, the man of sin and those who will be, who will be judged and, and damned because they did not refuse to, they refused to hear the truth. But then there in that verse 13, as we saw, there's a huge contrast. A contrast between the followers of Antichrist, described in verses 10 through 12, and now the followers of Christ. A very real and definable contrast. And this contrast, I believe the reason why the Holy Spirit had Paul write this in this context was that this contrast was something that they needed to, as believers in Thessalonica, they needed to translate into their lives. This was the, the contrast that they needed to live out. The question, how should we live in contrast with the darkness that is to come? There is darkness to come. God is going to judge this world. There is a tribulation period of time that is on the horizon. And, and, and we see that it's not very far away. Jesus is, is he's coming again. How should we then live in contrast to that dark picture which is coming? Paul lays it out. Let me give you three things tonight. How do we live in contrast with the darkness to come? Well, first of all, we need to remember our calling. Remember 
your calling. And Paul reminds them of this in verse 13. He says, we're bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren beloved of the Lord, because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth. Now, he, he starts by uh, bringing to their attention the, the thanksgiving that he has given both to God and to them for who they are and, and what God has done in their life. He says, I'm bound, I'm, I'm obligated, I am in debt to, to give thanks. I'm in debt to, to show and express my appreciation both to God. And of course, now in this letter, Paul's not only expressing appreciation to God for them, but he's expressing appreciation to them for what they have meant to him as his brethren beloved. I know there's a lesson here. That's not the, the point of our message per se, but it's a good thing for us to learn how to be thankful and appreciative for, of people that God has put in our lives. And specifically, as, as we pray for one another, as we spend time uh, uh, remembering each other before the Lord, a really good prayer request, if we can say a prayer request, is to just thank God for that individual. God, thank you for what you have done in their lives. Thank you for maybe the, perhaps the change that has taken place in their lives. Thank you for the growth that I've seen. Thank you for their service both to, to you and, and to me. Thank you for all that they, that they do. It's a good thing to give thanks to God for each other. And it's also a good thing to give thanks to each other for each other. And sometimes we miss that step. It's not that we're unthankful necessarily for the people in our lives, but we fail to express that appreciation to them. We ought to do it. And this is what Paul is saying. I, I, I'm thanking God every time I remember you, every time God brings uh, you to my mind, at all times and every occasion, I'm, I'm thankful because you're my, you're my brethren. Now, there wasn't any family relationship, but there was a spiritual relationship. There was a spiritual family relationship. And as we are adopted into the family of God at the point of salvation, we're brethren. We're brothers and sisters. And we ought to thank God for each other. He says, I'm, I'm bound to give thanks always for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord. And this love is clearly seen. It's clearly demonstrated by the action of God, by what God does. What does he do? Well, he says in verse 13, because, here's the reason, God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation. There is not only a thanksgiving that's given, there's also a salvation that's been granted. I'm, I'm thanking God because God has chosen you to salvation. Now we come to this phrase, the fact that you have been chosen by God, and already that strikes some fear in people's hearts. I mean, the word chosen means to elect. Or to prefer. And immediately there, there, there's some doctrines, there's some teaching that jump to the conclusion. Well, this means that God chose people uh, for salvation. God chose people to go to hell. And how do I know whether I'm one of God's chosen or not? And all right, take, take a deep breath. Calm down. Take a step back. I believe in this text it very clearly lays out. If you read the sentence of verse 13 and 14... It's, it's really neat. We're going to lay that out. But let's, let's also take a look at uh, the, what the Scripture says as a whole about this idea of election or this idea of being chosen. And we could look at many passages. I just want to show you one of them, and that is in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 2. We're, we're told exactly how this choosing takes place. God lays it out for us. He, he spells it out for us. He says uh, that believers are elect or were, were chosen... And notice the phrase, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through sanctification of the Spirit, unto obedience and sprinkling of blood, or of the blood of Jesus Christ. So this election, this choosing that takes place by God, is in accordance with the foreknowledge of God. What is foreknowledge? Well, foreknowledge is God knowing ahead of time, and I realize that that is a rather poor definition because God does not exist in time, but for, for our sakes, for our understanding, God knew ahead of time, he foreknew who was going to respond to the gospel, and we'll, we'll see that in just a second. God knew who, who would be open to receiving salvation, who, who would come to him in repentance and faith, 
And God, existing in the eternal present, not bound by time and space like we are, He chose me the moment I chose Him. He made the choice. I'm going to choose. I'm going to elect all those that come to me by my Son, Jesus Christ. I'm going to choose every single one of them. They are elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. And God chose you the moment you chose Him at salvation. Because Jesus said in John 6, Him that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out. You have the promise of God on that. Now this foreknowledge, as it's in the text here, was from the beginning. God knew this from eternity past. He knew those who would respond to the gospel message. That does not mean that he specifically chose some to respond and chose others not to respond, but he knew who would. That's God's foreknowledge. Now, there's a great security in this, is there not? The fact that if you choose to come to God in repentance and faith, if you, if you come to God with a heart of receiving Jesus Christ as your Savior, putting your faith in Him as the only hope of your eternity, when you come to God in that way, God says, this is how I'm going to respond. This is my response. I choose you because you have chosen me. And here is the security that you have. John chapter 10, verse 28 and 29. And I give unto them eternal life and they shall never perish neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand my father which gave them me is greater than all and no man is able to pluck them out of my father's hands if you came to christ if if you came to him in in faith receiving jesus christ and and turning away from from your sin if you came to him in that way You are secure and you are eternally secure because God has chosen you. And these believers, they needed to hear once again, you're chosen of God. God's not going to let you go. He's going to hold on to you. He's saved you. He's chosen you to salvation. And of course, this salvation involves and includes Rescue from the damnation that he just got done talking about in verse 12. He laid out, this is the the future. This is what people are going to uh, uh, be like. This is the choice they're going to make. And so therefore, there's going to be judgment, damnation for them. But you've come to salvation. God has now chosen you unto salvation. And you're going to be rescued, saved from the wrath that is to come. You're not going to be like those who in their lifetime received not the love of the truth. Remember back in verse 10 he talked about that? You're not going to be like those. So there is this choosing by God. And then in kind of a a, a systematic laying this out, there's there's a second thing that he references. He says, uh, because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation. Notice this next phrase, through the sanctification of the Spirit. So not only is there a choosing by God, but there's also a drawing by the Spirit of God. How does this salvation take place? What is the process? Well, the process is through the sanctification of the Spirit. Well, what what does that mean? What's that talking about? Well, the word sanctification means the consecration or the setting apart, the drawing away, or the calling of the Holy Spirit. So get this image in your mind. And if you're saved, you have experienced this in your life. So so there you are. You are a part of everyone else in the world. And so we're going to pretend all of you are part of the world. So there you are. You're, You're in the world. And you begin to hear the call of God. You hear God's word being preached. You hear the truth being laid out. And you begin to hear that call come Come to me. And you know what? You take a step and you hear some more truth and you hear some more truth and you hear some more truth and you, you come to that truth. What is happening? Well, what's happening is the Holy Spirit is dealing in your life. What's happening is He is troubling your soul with your condition. He's drawing you to salvation. 
He is sanctifying you. He's separating you, setting you apart unto salvation as you respond to him. And so this salvation, this process that takes place is through the drawing or through the sanctification of the spirit. We realize that that the Bible tells us that in our natural state, Romans 3.11, that there is none that seeketh after God. If God were to leave you alone, you would not care about him. You would not be troubled about your need of salvation. You would not be concerned about your relationship with God. You you wouldn't care about what the Bible says. Apart from God, that's who you and I are. And we need to be honest. All right? That's who we are. But the Spirit works. The Holy Spirit works in your life. And He brings about that concern. He, he troubles your heart. He makes you, he, he makes you unsettled about your spiritual condition. He, he causes you to, 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 to read the Bible. He causes you to, to, to listen to preaching. He calls you, hey, you need, to, you need to go to my house where you can hear my word being preached. Did we not hear about that tonight? You need to go to church. Now, there's nothing magical about going to church other than if you go to the right church, a good church, you're going to hear God's word. That's the work of the Spirit. He is drawing. And we have the promise in John 12 and verse 32 from Jesus himself that if I be lifted up, I will draw all men. How many men? All men. Is that just the elect men? No, all men. I'm going to draw all men unto me. We have that promise. And was Jesus lifted up? Yes, he was. He died on that cross. He was lifted up from the earth. And because of his death, because of his sacrifice that was made for our sin, because of that perfect payment that was made, there's a call to all individuals, every man, woman, child, come to salvation. And it's the Spirit that draws you, that sanctifies you, that, that pulls you in and, 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 and tells you, you want to you learn more about this. You want to see what this is about. You want to have a relationship with me. And God draws you. If you're saved, you know exactly what that is like. You went through it. We're told in Revelation that this is exactly what the Holy Spirit does. Revelation 22 and verse 17, and the Spirit. And the bride. Of course, it's our job to cooperate as a church. That's the bride. It's our job to cooperate with the Spirit and call out to people, come, come, come to salvation. Today, God, the Holy Spirit, is working in our world and he's crying out to individuals. He's calling out to the, the people that you work with. He's calling out to your neighbors. He's calling out to the, the, the people at the store. He, he's calling out to every individual. Would you come? And he's dealing in particular and specific ways in different individuals' lives. He's drawing. He's sanctifying individuals to the point of salvation. What a wonderful process this, this is. So there's the choosing of, uh, by God. This happens through the drawing of the Spirit. And then, look at this in verse number 13. God hath be- from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth. Responding to the truth. So, God's going to call all men. He's going to draw all men. He's going to be working in individuals' lives. And here's where the choice comes in. This is our part. There's only one proper response. And that is belief of the truth. One right response. Belief. That's faith. Now, what is the truth that is to believed? What, what, is, what, what is it that we need to is it just like our world does? Well, you know, to, you know, to, to have a spiritual experience, to be right with God, you know, you just got, you got to have faith. Have faith. Have faith in what? Have faith in the weatherman? Have faith in the Phillies? I mean, have faith in, I mean, faith. It's got to have an object. Faith. Faith in what? Well, specifically, belief of the truth. What specifically is this truth? Well, the truth is found in verse 14. 
Whereunto. So that word whereunto, it's, he's laying out, this is how you were called, and you were called whereunto. So this is the place that you were called to respond to the truth. Whereunto he called you by our gospel. By our gospel. What is the gospel? Well, the gospel is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus for our sin according to the scriptures. 1 Corinthians 15 lays that out. This is where our belief lies. This is where our faith ought to be. It ought to be in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus for our sin according to the scriptures. Now, some people don't have a problem with that first part. They can believe that Jesus died. They can believe that Jesus was buried and that he rose again. I mean, doesn't all of Christendom kind of believe that about Jesus, that that was a historical fact, that that actually happened? Well, we can leave out the rest of it. That's the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus for our sin. Okay, now there's where the rub is. There's where the problem lies. So I have to believe and put my faith in the fact that Jesus died not just for the world in general, but Jesus died for my sin. Meaning that if I'm the only human being on this planet, that Jesus would still have to die for my sin. That is what we're talking about. Would Jesus be right in judging you for all eternity for the sin that you have committed against him? Now we know factually up here that that is true. But it's at salvation where we understand in here and we believe, we own that that is true. Jesus died and he was buried. He rose again for our sin and according to the scriptures. In other words, Jesus is the way that God foreordained before he created this world. Because he looked down through the, the annals of time and he saw me. You ever had, have you ever had someone object to you when you were sharing the gospel with them or you're trying to talk to them about God and you talk about the fact that we had this sin nature, we chose sin and, and so death was passed upon all men for all have sinned and you're trying to explain that and they say, well, if God knew, if God knew we were all going to sin, if, if God knew that this was going to happen, then why did he create us? Why didn't he just say, you know what, I'm not going to do that. Well, I don't know all of the reason. I do know some of the reason. And that is God looked down and he saw some of you. He saw me. He knew if he gave his life as a sacrifice for sin that you would come to him. That I would come to him. And if he crumpled up that plan and threw it in the garbage, all of us would go with it. What a picture of his love. But that is the gospel. That is the gospel. It's the gospel that calls out to us. It's the gospel that calls to us to believe. It's the gospel that says you need to believe in the fact that you have a need, that you need to be rescued from sin. It's the gospel that says you need to believe in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and his shed blood for your sin. It's the gospel that says you need to believe in his promise of eternal life. If you will just receive him as your, your Lord and your Savior, it's the gospel that calls out, believe, believe, believe. That's all you got to do is believe. And perhaps there's some of you tonight are just sitting on the sidelines. You're, you're waiting for some sort of experience. You're waiting for, for, for some sort of sign from heaven of when you're going to respond to the gospel. What you need to do, you already know what you need to do. You need to believe. Stop trying to manufacture something on your own. Just come to Christ and believe. The gospel is calling to you today. Come. Come, the Holy Spirit is trying to pull you from the world in which you're existing. He, he's trying to pull you out and say, come to me, come to me. Believe the gospel. You can do that. You can even do that on a Sunday night. I know it's more like, you know, cool, whatever. You got to do that on like a Sunday morning or a big revival meeting or you got to go to camp to do that. 
No, you don't. If you're troubled about your need, if you're bothered, you already know the Spirit is convicting. Because guess what? Without Him doing that, you wouldn't care. You'd be ambivalent. You'd know God is troubling you. God is calling you. He's convicting you. The Spirit is doing its work. Now you need to believe the truth. Believe the truth. Put your faith in the truth. The truth that is represented by the gospel. So God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation through the sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth, whereunto he called you by our gospel to the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, this, this, is, this is wonderful. So not only is there thanksgiving that's given, salvation that's granted, but there's also glorification that's gained. Did you read, did you catch that in verse 14? Obtaining the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So that means when we are saved, we obtain glory. And it's not just, you know, minimal, measly glory. This is the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. You obtain the same glory. His majesty, His splendor. This is what you possess. And you will possess an even greater measure in the future. Does that not amaze you? I mean, think about it. We don't have time to study this out tonight, but as a believer, and I believe this is what Paul was saying to, to these folks in Thessalonica, he's saying to them, look, this, this is your destination. You are destined to obtain this glory if you're a believer, if you're saved. You are destined to, to obtain this glory. Those who receive not the love of the truth, they're destined to the damnation that I just talked about. And if you're sitting in this auditorium tonight and you have not responded, you have not received the love of the truth that he spoke of a little bit earlier on, then you are destined to damnation. That is your end. You don't really have anything to look forward to. However, those of us who are believers, this is our destiny. The believers in Thessalonica, this is your destiny. What is this glorification that they could look forward to? Well, just think about a few of these things that you have if you're a believer to look forward to. You have a glorified inheritance. We are joint heirs with Jesus Christ. Everything that he is in line to receive, we are in line to receive. You say, can you explain that? Not really, because I don't understand it. But I know that's what the Bible says. We glorified inheritance. We're, we're in line for a glorified nature. Do you realize that you have a sin nature? you got a draw of your flesh towards sin and the, and the Christian life is a battle and it's, it's a slog, it's hard. I can't wait for the day in which I'm free from this sinful flesh. I get a glorified nature. No more fight, no more battle. It's peace from here on out. I get a glorified body. Isn't that nice? A glorified body that when my mind tells me everything I need to do on the basketball court, everything I'm supposed to do as a good player, my body can actually do it. Isn't that great? I don't know if we'll be playing basketball in heaven, so don't quote me on that. But we're going to get a glorified body, and that body will be, Philippians 3 tells us, like unto his glorious body. We'll have a body like Jesus' body. Yeah, think about that for a while. We'll also get a glorified home. A home in heaven. The word home, that's an important word, isn't it? Home is the place where we belong. We're not just a guest. We're not a, 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 a visitor. It's home. It's where we belong. It's a glorified home. We'll also receive glorified rewards. We'll receive an eternal weight of glory, as Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 17. 
This is the glorification. This is the completion of our salvation that we look forward to in the future. Now, in the present, God has chosen us to salvation. We are eternally secure if we've come to him for salvation. We don't have to worry about losing our salvation in any such way. But we do have a future to look forward to, and God's going to complete that work. And we're going to be glorified like Jesus Christ. What a future that we have. So we live different when we remember our calling. We remember what God has done in our lives. Number two, not only remember your calling, but in verse 15, he lays out, he lays out this truth. Hold your coordinates. I needed a C, okay, so don't judge me. Um, hold your position. He says in verse 15, therefore, okay, therefore, because of your calling, because of what God has done in your life, Because of the salvation that you've received and the glorification you're looking forward to, because of all of that, therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which ye have been taught, whether by word or our epistle. Now, this was a needed message for these believers because back in verse number two of this same chapter, we see that some of them were shaken. In their mind, they were troubled. They were unsettled. They had begun to waver. And they needed to get refocused, to get their thoughts back realigned to where they needed to be. And they needed to remember their calling. And now, specifically, they needed to hold their position. First of all, he says that you should stand fast. Stand fast. Hold your ground. Maintain your position. Stand firm, persevere, persist, hold fast. I read this this week. Stand because he's given you a standing. I like that. I wish I had come up with it. But anyway, I didn't. God's given you a standing, so stand. He's given you a place in his family, so stand. 1 Corinthians 15, 58, very familiar verse. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as you know your labor is not in vain in the Lord. When we go through difficult times, trials and testings and persecution, like these believers were enduring in Thessalonica, when we go through times like that, what we need is the attitude of Paul. You remember Paul when he was headed to Jerusalem and he knew all the bad things that were going to happen to him. And remember what he said there in Acts chapter 20? He said, I know all of this, but none of these things move me. I know about all the trouble that's in my life. I know about all of the difficulty, but none of those things move me. I'm going to stand and I'm going to stand fast. If we're going to live in contrast with the darkness that is to come, we're going to need to stand fast. But not only that, we're also going to need to hold. Stand fast and hold the traditions which you've been taught. Hold on here. Let's walk through this. What exactly are we to hold? Well, he says you're to hold on to traditions. The teachings of the past that's been passed down to you. Well, what traditions? Well, the traditions which ye have been taught. The teachings that you have been taught. How were they taught? Well, they were taught by word, that spoken word. That's Paul, who was with them, spent time with them, taught them, trained them, discipled them, both by word and by epistle, both audibly and, 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 and in writing. These were the traditions that they were to hold. Now, we ought to ask one more question. Where did these teachings come from? Where did what Paul taught them verbally and the truth that Paul wrote for them in in his epistles, where did that truth come from? Did it come from Paul? No, it actually came directly from God. And there's the key to understanding this word tradition. The key is, where does the tradition come from? Now, Paul has made clear uh, in, in, his, 
in his writings, he's made clear, I'm sure, when, when he spoke. He repeated this twice in the book of 1 Corinthians when he was writing to them. He said, For I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you. In other words, what I'm giving you, what I'm passing down to you, is not from me. I received it from the Lord. 1 Corinthians 15.3, I delivered unto you, first of all, that which also I received. Received from the Lord. So the key is, this is not my teaching, this is not my ideas. I am passing down to you the very word of God. And there's a very important distinction when we think of this word tradition between the traditions of men and the traditions of God. We're warned about the traditions of men in Colossians chapter 2 and verse 8. Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world and not after Christ. Tradition of men, we need to be wary of those things. Things that, you know, someone just decided to do years ago and say, well, this is the way we're going to do things from now on. That's a tradition of man. Man thought it up. Man created it and passed it down from generation to generation. And Paul says, hey, beware of that. Beware of that. Don't buy into that hook, line, and sinker. Beware. In Matthew 15 and verse 6, Jesus warned about tradition and specifically the tradition of the Pharisees. In fact, they had, uh, according to this verse, what Jesus said, you've made the commandment. All right, that's the real tradition from God, that which you've received from God. You've made the commandment of God none effect by your tradition. They had the right tradition, the commandment of God, but instead they chose to go with the tradition of man and that nullified, that, that took away the benefit of the command of God. This is a very clear distinction. Make sure that the tradition that you're following is the tradition not of men, but the tradition of God. There's a huge difference. And when you identify the tradition that, yes, is passed down to you by human beings or human elements, when you identify, you connect what they are saying with what God has said in His Word, you know that that tradition doesn't just come from that individual, it comes from God. And what are you supposed to do with that tradition? You're supposed to hold it. The word hold means to grab, to seize, to arrest it. Now there's a problem with this tradition and the, the problem can be on both sides. This can be the fault of the older generation. The older generation who fails to explain, fails to connect their tradition, what they are doing, with the truth of God's word. Now perhaps there is reasons for what they're doing but they failed in teaching the next generation what those reasons were. That's a problem. But also, the same problem is held for in, in um, or it can be laid at the feet of the younger generation. Because it can be the fault of the younger generation to, to fail to grab, to fail to seize or arrest the truth for themselves. The truth is being presented. That connection back to the truth of God. This is why we do these things. This is why we say these things. This is why the, we have the, the stipulations that we have because it goes back to the Bible. This is the reason why we fail to do that or the, the younger generation fails to see that sort of connection. The truth's presented to them and they just, oh, I'm not in, uh, they're not listening. So there's something to be learned from both sides. Whether or not you consider yourself to be the old generation or the younger generation, I prefer to be right in the middle, all right? I'll take that. Right in the middle. But if we're older, we have an obligation. Not an obligation to scream, this is what we do. But an obligation to say, this is why we do what we do. And then the younger generation, you have the responsibility, the obligation to take what you're being told what you're hearing and saying, okay, what do I believe? What's my connection to the tradition? Making sure that this is a tradition of God and not just the tradition of men. Can I say something to the younger generation? It kind of grieves me a little bit. I wonder how many traditions of God have been let go because there was a generation that failed to grab a hold of them. In other words, you ask that generation, why do you do that? I don't know. My parents did it. Obviously, their heart's not in it, but, you know, 
My parents did it. And that's it. They never really grabbed and held the tradition for themselves. And because it was a tradition of God, it was a net loss when we let it go. When we said, I don't see the importance of it. Yeah, just get rid of it. I mean, we are the most enlightened generation that's ever graced the face of this planet, right? I mean, that is what we believe about ourselves, right? I mean, it's all over. That is what we believe. No one has been as good as we are. Except that part's not true. Hold your coordinates. Stand fast. Hold. Not the traditions of men, but hold the traditions of God. And number three, we'll finish tonight. Verse 16 and 17. Embrace your consolation. Now the Lord, now our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God, even our, or, I'm sorry, now, now our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God, even our Father, which hath loved us and hath given us everlasting consolation and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish you in every good word and work. Now, it's just a side note. I'll throw this in really quick. If you look at the verbs there, like uh, comfort and establish, and given, and the, the, the main verbs there, they're all, they're all singular verbs. Which means that the subject is singular. The idea of Jesus Christ and God the Father are one in the same. Because those of you who like English, you know, there has to be subject-verb agreement. So for those of you who like English, that's just for you. You can investigate that yourself. But yet another evidence and proof that Jesus is God. That he is one and one in the same. But the point of what Paul is saying is he's, he's telling them what you need to do is embrace your consolation. Now, this consolation that he mentions comes in three different forms. First of all, there's the past consolation. And I don't mean past as in it's isolated in the past, but there was a starting point. He says that even our Father, which hath loved us and given us everlasting consolation. God's love. He loved you. He loves you, both past, present, and future. This is how God views you today. He loves you. Don't forget the love of God for you. Not only that, not only does he love you, but he's given you everlasting consolation. This is his comfort. The word consolation is from the exact same root word as we receive the word the comforter in John chapter 16. The Holy Spirit. Do you remember when the Holy Spirit came and took up residence in your heart? Not only that, but you also have the consolation, the, the comfort of the propitiation and forgiveness of your sin because of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is an ever and ought to be an everlasting comfort to you no matter what you're going through in life. If you're a believer, this is the past consolation that you need to embrace but not only is there a past consolation, he also references a future consolation. He says, he's given unto us everlasting consolation and good hope through grace. Good hope? What is this good hope through grace? Well, oftentimes in the Bible, when the word hope is used, it's talking about the expectation of the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. In the trials and troubles of today, this consolation that we're to embrace involves looking to the future and the fact that our Lord Jesus Christ is coming for us. And that's not a cross your fingers, I really hope he comes, but it is an expectation that he will. You expect it to take place. What a comfort that is. Now, he reminds you that that comfort is not because of who you are, not because of how great you are, it's through grace. That was the grace that you received at salvation. It's not you, it's, it's him. But you can look forward to the fact that he's coming. He's coming. And that's a future consolation, which should all then translate to a present consolation today. Practical encouragement for today. Translating the past salvation, what's God, what God has done in your life in the past, translating the future consolation, the fact that he's coming again, now bringing it to the present. And when we bring it to the present, what happens? Verse 17, comfort your hearts and establish you in every good work. Now, this is what God does when we embrace this consolation. That first word there is 
The fact that he gives comfort. He exhorts us. He encourages us. He strengthens us. Remember what these believers were enduring, what they were going through. They needed their minds to be calmed. They needed their emotions to be comforted. They needed their desires to be realigned. They needed their heart to be comforted. And today we need to allow God's love and his work of salvation in the past and our future expectation of his return, we need to allow that to admonish and exhort and encourage our heart. Encourage our thoughts. Exhort our emotions. Admonish our desires, our heart. We need to allow this reality to really give us comfort. It's easy to push that away. Tell God some other time, I really, I'm in, I'm in a bad way. I'm going through a bad time. Well, that's what these believers were going through. Paul's praying, receive the comfort that God wants to give to you. Don't allow the thoughts of discouragement to find fertile soil in your heart. Embrace the comfort of God. Remember his love. Commune with your companion, the Holy Spirit. Think about your glorious future as a child of God and let that minister comfort to your heart. So God's giving comfort and God is also giving stability. Establish you. Establish, make stable, make firm. And make firm not only the words that you say, what comes out of your mouth, but make firm, secure, and settled what you do. Stay faithful. Don't quit. Don't walk away from the ministry that God has given you. If you're, if you're busy in the ministry, and you ought to be, you ought to have a ministry in this church that God's using you to fulfill. Don't walk away from it. Don't quit. Let the comfort of God establish you. Make you stable and firm. And in those times in which things are not going well, in those times you might be facing some persecution, you might be facing some difficulty, remember who you are in Christ, embrace the consolation, and let it establish your heart so that you can continue serving Him. God wants to give you some comfort, and God wants to give you some stability. So how do we live in contrast with the coming dark, the, the, the darkness that's on its way? How do we live in contrast with that? We remember our calling. We hold our coordinates. And we embrace our consolation. I trust you'll be encouraged tonight. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, thank you for meeting with us. I pray that you would encourage us tonight. I don't know what some may be dealing with, what some may be going through. I pray that this very night, they would grab a hold of the things, not the things that I've said, but what your word has said. And allow that to comfort our hearts. May we see with clear vision what you have done in our lives. How you've chosen us, how you've consecrated us by your spirit, how you've now destined us to, to glory one day. We can look forward to your coming, to your return. And I pray that we would allow those truths to comfort our hearts that we might stand and hold that which we need to hold. I pray for some who sit in this very auditorium tonight who have never received this wonderful comfort in the gospel. I pray that you would challenge them this evening that they need to turn to you today. They need to put their faith and trust in you today. Thank you for the ministry of your word tonight. May you bless it to our hearts and let it affect our lives this week. We pray this in the precious and holy name of our Lord Jesus Christ.